and welcome to Food, Views, and Big Ideas. I'm Tanya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen, and this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward, whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture, and we want you to know who they are, their views, and their big ideas. We're coming to you today from Camaragal land, and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Hi everybody, it's Lucy here in the studio today, and I'm here talking to Will Barton, the CEO of Gundagai Meat Processors. Established by the Barton family in 2020, Gundagai Lamb is a celebration of the family's 100-plus-year legacy as leaders in the Australian meat industry. It's the shining jewel in the family crown, and we're going to hear today about their mission to lead the industry in a better, cleaner, and fairer way to produce Aussie lamb, their use of innovative technology to produce superior eating quality lamb, And we're also going to find out about a brand new project, a property that's being developed as a demonstration scale enterprise where producers, chefs and consumers can come together to learn, share knowledge and experience. Will, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk to you after having a fair bit to do with, I guess, you and uh, Tonya over the last couple of years, just sharing bits and pieces about what we're doing and, and hearing your excitement for some of those things. So it's nice to be able to share a bit of an update. Well, it was exciting for us to be able to come and visit you last March, it was, uh, March 2022, and to come and see your operation down in the Riverina and really just learn, I guess, at what's at the heart of, of what you are doing and, and the, the legacy that your family has brought to the meat industry and, and the business as it is now. Most people that visit the site are, I guess, surprised by how sophisticated the process is. And I think people have an image in their head of what an abattoir or a meat processing facility might be. And, and really it's quite a, quite a modern facility and it's quite a, I think a really interesting process that's done in a way that, um, we can all be really proud of in the industry because it's come a long way since certainly we started 50 years ago. Well, it was certainly uh, our first experience of, of being in an abattoir and seeing the process for ourselves. And I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, but I think you're absolutely right. It, it was, a process that I needed to see and wanted to see. And I actually walked away feeling very empowered to know how well the process was managed and the animals were treated and the sophistication and, and professionalism behind it all. Yeah. And I think that for us, if we go back to the start, um, my grandfather, he started a butcher's apprenticeship in Gunnigai in 1919. So, wow. And then he sort of spent his life working away in that and, and ended up owning um, not that butcher shop but another butcher shop in Gundagai in, in times where there were multiple butcher shops in a town of 2,000 people, which is clearly not what happens today. But he ended up owning and, and running Barton's Butchery and they were using essentially a slaughterhouse, a very simple um, facility on the edge of town and in, in the mid-70s. So they were they were processing their own beef, pork and lamb to service this small butcher shop and maybe another couple in town. But everyone had their own little facility and it was all pretty ad hoc and it was fairly archaic, really, the, the process that was undertaken. And so in the 70s, regulation really meant that everybody needed to sort of step up and do things a little bit better. And that's actually when Gundagai Meat Processors was established by my uncle Tony right. and my father Bill because they recognised that they couldn't really keep running the butcher shop on this kind of archaic primary processing step they needed to do something better and so that was really the the genesis of the business in 74 um which next year is is 50 years yeah incredible legacy and yeah and so they they started out again beef pork and lamb and then it's sort of slowly been refined over time so it's been lamb only since sort of the late 90s early 2000s and why the uh, focus on lamb like what took you on that sort of journey I, and pathway i think pork was probably identified early as being a little bit specialist and and probably a, a a, a fairly different um, processing system, if you like, and the steps are a little bit different and there are different challenges. So we stopped that probably in the, I think, about the early 80s, mid-80s, and then we kept doing um, beef and lamb until the late 90s. And I think really the competition from some of the big global um, players in beef was just too strong and we didn't see ourselves as being able to really, I guess, grow and excel in the beef 
game. But for us, it just seemed like it was the right thing to do to really focus in on that um, quite specific uh, species of, of sheep and lamb and to do a really good job of, of that. And it's obviously, they're two very different scales. You know, a beast is kind of, or, you know, cattle are sort of, there's 10 of ten sheep to every one, yeah. uh, you know, steer, if you like, in, in the processing sense. And so it's a completely different scale. And uh, we were ultimately supported really well by a, um, an exclusive contract to process lamb for coals in the early 2000s. And so that that sort of was the impetus. To- well, we'd we'd stopped, or we we were doing very little beef in the late nineties. It had sort of scaled back, but the facility was still there and the capability was still there. And we sort of turned it off, and we weren't sure if we'd get back into it. And then, yeah, that the the point that we struck that exclusive deal with Coles, which was a ten year deal, which is massive for a small business, small family business like ours in a small town to have that security in what is still quite a volatile game. Um, was really exciting, and so we we decided then to focus in on lamb and and do it and do it do it well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so, just I'd love to touch on quickly what what the challenges are in that space. Why are why is it a challenging game? Why is the volatility there? Like, what are those challenges you're dealing with? I think they're many and varied, and it's a, it's a complex game. I think if you went to our Gundagai Meat Processors website, we've got a little a little flow chart of where all the bits and pieces of a lamb go to. And so most people think that we're dealing with, you know, legs, racks, loins, shoulders, and then there's a couple of shanks and, you know, a few other things going on. But we, we, we get all the way through to, um, render material that's going into, say, um, you know, tallow that gets processed for cosmetics. And I mean, we don't obviously follow that all the way through, but there's, there's offals to be sold. There's skins to trade. There's, um, there's every part of the animal. Absolutely every for, part yeah. of the animal. So we're recycling water and we're irrigating um, lucerne to grow hay. And so there's there's lots of moving parts. I think fundamentally the greatest challenge, and it's one that we're trying to solve with Gundagai lamb, is that lamb is ultimately a commodity. And so what you will find through seasons is that either the producer's winning large or the processor's winning large, and it's always at the expense of the other. Right, yeah. And so, so it's kind of tension. That's right. Yeah. And so you'll have these periods of time where lamb's really profitable for a processor, but the producer's under under strain in terms of returns at the farm gate, and then that will overcorrect and overshoot. And for a period of time, the the you know the the producer's doing really well at the expense of the processor. And it, it's a curious thing because particularly in lamb, lamb is being sold as as a premium market item. Right, you're not. You're not as a as a chef or a consumer at home going out to buy lamb on the basis that it's a commodity. Mm, yeah, you're buying that as you know they say a lot of consumers buy lamb on price or occasion. So if it's on special or if they've got something special at home, you know, like yeah. an event, and so that dynamic makes it hard to run a processing facility through time and shelter yourself from a margin point of view to make sure you're always profitable. Um, and so yeah, the Coles contract was was really very a stabilizing influence on our business in the early 2000s and I what we didn't realize at the time but what that led to then was this period where we didn't buy livestock or sell meat and so jumping around a little bit but but the essentially what happened from sort of 2000 until 2020 we became a fee-for-service processing facility so our clients and Coles was the the biggest and the only uh, client that we had for the first 15 years of that 20-year period they were they buy their livestock, they still do, and they're still a big client of ours. And they sell their own meat, obviously. They have the supermarkets. Yeah. And so we took on an organic um client in two thousand and fifteen, Arcadian Organic, who are Cleavers brand that you would see in, in supermarkets domestically. They also export a lot of a lot of their meat and but we weren't trading trading in the sense that we weren't buying livestock or selling meat. We were in that twenty year period um just providing a service to those people. And that what really became I guess the when we decided that we needed to buy livestock again and sell meat again, we were able to reimagine what we were doing in Gundagai Lamb and say, well, we don't have any any existing farmers to kind of go through a change management piece and say we're going to do it differently. We just said we're going to start from scratch. So you um, had the benefit of not having to make that transition, as you just said. You yeah. sort of been able to sit back, assess the situation, and actually bring a completely different and innovative approach to 
entering back into that space. Absolutely, which is which is incredibly frightening. Like if you think about and exciting. Well, it is. Uh, if you don't have anything that you're actually working around, then there's no excuses if you if you don't you know you don't do it right because in every in every business you say well you know. I had this one constraint and so I did it. I worked around that did and I did it. I did it that, that way because yeah. of this thing. But we were really starting from scratch, which was – and I thought it was our biggest competitive disadvantage when we were starting, that we didn't have this existing supply base and we didn't have existing clients. And my – for probably the first 12 months, I, I, it was something that we needed to overcome in my brain. It was always this thing that was this challenge that we had. And then I realized at some point that it was actually our biggest advantage yeah. because – when we started doing things differently, I was always looking over my shoulder, wondering when the you know the bigger multinationals in our meat processing space were going to try to replicate what we were doing, or or we're going to steal some of the threads that we think make a lot of sense. And they're still not doing it, and it's because they have this huge supply chain, which would get very disrupted if they tried to do things differently. And so we just really went out to market to to farmers, to our producer. Um, audience or what we thought would be our audience and we said hey we're going to do something different if you're interested come with us if you're not that's fine and that really worked well because we don't we've only got people that are engaged by the ideas that we have and and think the way that we think and and they're a really exciting interesting group of people yeah and it's the same on the consumer side that's been a little bit harder so finding distributors globally that actually get it has been a bit, bit of a challenge so they've got to change their thought process and perspective on what you're doing or what, yeah, what are they, the, the the barriers that you see that they identify? I guess that if you're if you're a distributor or a wholesaler and you're selling into restaurants and you really need to understand the points of difference yeah. um, and, and believe that there's a that there's a, a justifiable need for those in order to be able to explain that properly to a chef who then understands it. And so we've been incredibly lucky to have some really key supporters along the journey that have sort of got it and and they've become sort of champions in a way and i guess we haven't really explained the why which i'm sure or how which i'm sure we'll get to but like people like uh jason Staunt at the uh stokehouse restaurant in Melbourne, Melbourne. yep he kind of got it straight away yep and um he's been a great supporter in the sense that um the product that we've got is it's really consistently consistently high in quality, and so it's not about being like the extreme end of high quality. It's not some sort of crazy outlier in that sense, but we the technology that we have enables us to do it very consistently. So Jason sort of said, you know, lamb was only ever a la carte. Um, you would never put it on a an event menu because it didn't scale. If you couldn't really look after every yeah. lamb dish that you were putting on a plate in a restaurant, then it was a bit too risky. It didn't yeah, always... Yeah, quality and consistency's got Well, it to wasn't predictable, and so yeah. it became challenging for someone like him, and now he puts it on his our product on his um, event menus because he knows that it's consistent and it will behave the same way and he can scale it. Yeah. Um, super exciting. And the, the other one that I'd call out is Darren O'Rourke in, in here in Sydney, and he has... He just gets it, and he's been such a big supporter of it, and that makes all the difference. Yeah. If I had one of him in every capital city that we're targeting globally, yeah. we'd we'd be a runaway success and wouldn't <laughs> have any trouble. He's so, and so when we go into markets globally, like in the US, the, the big the big cities to hit are LA, San Francisco, Boston, New York, and Miami. But if you go to a distributor who's got lamb sort of in there on their offer. And you say, "Hey, I've got this product," and they just add you to the list and and just sell it like it's every day. It doesn't really move the needle. You need to find that person that the believes people, what you yeah. believe and yeah. understands, and can be your advocate in the market. Absolutely, for that, as you said, Jason and and Darren are, and you know, both of them doing an incredible job in their their roles and realms within the industry. Yes. Um, we've known Darren for a very long time and and hold him in very high respect for you know his approach to understanding what producers are trying to achieve and helping be their advocate and and push that, uh, not push, that's the wrong word, but educate chefs sure. on how to uh, understand those those points of difference and why they're important to yeah. embrace and, and support. So let's take a couple of steps back. So was it always a given that you would go into the family business? No, not at all. I, I um, So I studied food science. I did a food science degree straight out of school in the late 90s. 
and I enjoyed that, but I th- I don't think really my brain started to work until about the age of 25. We I, I laugh sometimes. We used to have this – we've now got technology in our boning room that means that um, band saws can't cut people. It's called blade stop. But before we had that technology, band saws were this really scary thing, and we didn't ever let males under the age of 25 operate a band saw because they weren't <laughs> mature enough mentally to actually oh – we couldn't trust them with these things. And I, was a, I think I was a bit like that. I, I – didn't really find my way until a bit later. And so I, I spent a year overseas just sort of traveling and working after that degree. And I ended up coming home and studying uh, property valuations, which was random. I wanted to live in a city at that time in my life. And I had a f- family friend who said, if you want to live in the city and still get sort of access to the bush and, and sort of your, I guess, your shot of agriculture in your in your job, you should consider rural property valuations. And so I went into that field and I and I fell in love with it and I I I studied hard for the first time in my life and I was I was good at um the the university process and I just kind of figured it out it clicked for me and I had a really exciting 10 years in in that space and and what I ended up doing was specializing in in post farm gate processing assets so think wineries abattoirs, almond hulling, olive oil pressing, um, anything you can think of that took a I was going to say a niche part of the the industry, but not at all because actually it's very broad. Well, it is broad, but I think in the same sense, if it it requires a little bit of um, business acumen to understand what the key drivers are in each of those industries, but it also requires a bit of an agricultural kind of lens because you have to understand that there's going to be climatic things that, that change the outcome of or the fortunes of of those businesses who are really reliant on something that's then reliant on the climate and and, yeah, so and productivity. To, Absolutely, yeah. and so I I had I I got really fascinated with how those different industries engaged with their their supply chains. So in in the winery context, they have these you know whole farm contracts for grapes as they're growing, and they send people into the field to count and estimate quality and and volume of grapes so that they can see what's going to come to their facility through time. And people commit in advance, and all these different supply chains had a different approach to how they secured the right supply for the processing step. Some of them have relatively light, um, I guess. Uh, capital footprints in the processing step. So if you think about um, oysters, for instance, when they when they come in, you've got oyster grading, you know, machines, and so there's a bit of capital involved in setting up a shed and making sure that you've got the right infrastructure and what have you. Red meat processing is incredibly capital intensive. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that oyster grading sheds aren't expensive, but it does require like it's it's basically like um, it's manufacturing on. Um, on, on quite a big scale, and it's, it's almost like having a car factory, if you like, but instead of assembling something, you're disassembling yeah, something. Yeah. So you start with something in one piece and you're pulling it into many parts. And so I, I think somehow without realising it, in the last sort of one or two years of that career, I found myself talking to my uncle and my father a lot about what was happening in our business, and they were calling me and saying, well, how do other people do this and what's the approach there? And I realised that I'd spent 10 years really – Getting ready to come yeah, back to the business without even realizing it, yeah, completely without. And I, yeah, and I, which is probably the best way. Well, yes. I mean, we were encouraged, as I think a lot of people um, in my generation were, to go and do something else because agriculture had been challenging. And so, I had prepared to not do that and be content in that. And I was, I was having a great time doing it. But then all of a sudden, I realized, oh wow, I've got something to add here. And it came in a time in my life when I was sort of ready to, I guess move back if the option was there and it was and so in 2014 uh, my now wife Carla and I moved back and and we really haven't haven't looked back we we love it how incredible because what you did was had all the building blocks there to bring a completely fresh mindset to a family business that's yes. got a 100 plus year legacy but you were able to actually come in and look at how to reshape that and then you had the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and in- incredibly fortunate in that sense. And you kind of look back on it and you say that sort of to a certain degree looks a bit planned and probably does in retrospect, but it certainly wasn't. I, I'd spent a bit of time there as a kid. I'd worked in the plant throughout my teenage years on holidays and all that sort of stuff and was relatively uninterested in the sense of, of, of doing that work. But it has been really beneficial mm. to be able to go and do something else. And I, 
every now and again we have students or someone through the plant and, I, and if they say any advice or anything like that, and I always say, go and do something else because that other lens that you can put over whatever is your default kind of place will always bring benefit. That diversity can't be replaced in terms of thinking and, and yeah, looking at things differently. differently. Exactly, yep. through a different kind of lens, oh, 100%. And so I think what, what stands out to me is is the fresh approach you took to the branding, like very yes. strong brand presence and identity and the words that you have very clearly on the branding, which are all about better, cleaner, fairer. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that and understand the process that you went through to try and, I guess, start with this blank page and do things differently. Yeah, so we, we, we spent a bit of time expanding capacity at the plant through sort of that 2017, 2018 period. And this was pre-Gundy Guy Land, but we, we knew that we needed a bit more space because we had um, two major clients that were looking for more processing capacity. And we knew that we needed to build our, grow our business a little bit because we were sort of sub-competitive scale, if you like, for the for the overheads involved in export and all of those other activities. And so, so you're kind of at that tipping point, really. We were. You? It's like stay where you are or that's it. Take and so the next step. We'd taken that step and as part of that we did some um some bits and pieces in the plant which ended up being really um really beneficial. We put a really advanced carcass sortation system in which which runs on RFID. So nobody touches carcasses in our chiller system. They're all moved um, mechanically through a process and identified as individual carcasses. And what that allowed us to do was then to think about the pieces of information that we might collect about it around individual carcasses to get an understanding of how good they were simplistically. And that's really what's led us to those three tenets of better, cleaner, fairer. So the Meat and Livestock Australia has done, you know, 20 years of research on eating quality, uh, in, in beef and lamb. But in the lamb case, I think they've done something like a 120,000 consumer taste tests over, wow. over the journey. And, and the leading influence on, there's many influences, but the leading influence on, on eating quality outcomes in lamb is intramuscular fat or what we know in beef as sort of marbling. And so the better refers to, a higher level of intramuscular fat. And we've been able to, I guess, measure that using um, a probe called the MEQ probe. And it, it, we helped the MEQ probe with samples and with their machine learning process to actually build an algorithm and a model for their probe to predict quite accurately the level of intramuscular fat in lamb. So if you think about beef, we've been able to collect this information in beef for like 20 years. So we, we look at the eye muscle of a, of a beef carcass and there's some comparison cards, and we get to a point where I understand what the Marvel score is. In lamb, we we've never had that because and why is that? Well, like, because the carcasses move really quickly. They're small and they go fast. We don't we don't quarter them like we quarter beef in a in a carcass chiller. The a beef carcass comes off a, a processing floor in two sides of beef, so it's cut in half. And then You've in got the, the big sections. Yeah, that's right. And then and then to get it into a more manageable portion to get into a boning room to then be broken down into, you know, um primals and then ultimately into into cuts like steaks, they quarter it. And when they quarter it in the chiller, it exposes the eye muscle. And that allows someone to go and have a look and say this is better or worse, you know, on a scale. And so this the partnership with MEQ Probe was really important for us because it enabled us to actually see inside the carcass and for the first time anywhere in the world understand the level of intramuscular fat in that lamb carcass. Wow. So it really was an industry first Absolutely. developing that probe, that technology to be able to give you that reading and understanding of what's happening in the carcass. Yeah, and I, I would hope that in the next few years it's adopted across industry because it, it's a it's a it's a fundamental um for us an industry to understand the level of of eating quality of every carcass. And you can't really improve unless you know those things, and so that becomes... It's your really data. Critical. Yeah, it's Absolutely. your data set. So then the cleaner piece was that one, once you have... Once you know the amount of marbling in a carcass, and um, if you're asking farmers to send you product that's got higher intramuscular fat, one of the things that you can do to get more intramuscular fat or marbling is to overfatten the carcass. So to feed it too much or to hold it for too long and let it fatten and fatten and fatten. But the problem with that is that you end up with a product that's got a lot of, or a carcass that's got a lot of outside fat, which is typically wasted. So it's trimmed off either in the restaurant, which which is upsetting to 
a chef or in the home, which is upsetting to the person that's purchased the product because they feel like they've paid for something that's yeah, they've like trimmed a lot off, the they've lost twenty percent of it or whatever. Yeah, uh, and it's it's not great for us because we buy carcasses on a dollar per kilo basis for the whole thing, so it's it's not a great outcome for anyone really, other than the farmer who's managed to put a lot of weight, but it's the wrong kind of weight. It's fat. Yeah, there's a challenge with that too. That's a bit hidden, which is that it takes about twice as much energy, so twice as much grass or grain or whatever your animal's eating, to create a kilo of fat as it does to create a kilo of lean meat. Right. So once a lamb's got to the point in the production system or on farm that it's actually got to the size it's getting to, then adding fat to the outside is no longer an intelligent thing to do because it's it's using resources, it's using you know land resources. And, and so that concept that a producer might inadvertently be using too much land or too much grass or whatever to create that product is also not very sustainable for our environment. And so that led us to this cleaner outcome, which says that you can we can measure that and we use a something called a DEXA X-ray to do that. And DEXA X-ray is a dual energy X-ray. So every carcass that we um, we process goes through this X-ray and it tells us the level of lean meat yield in the carcass. So you've got this intramuscular fat, which is telling you that the carcass is better and we measure that objectively. We've got a lean meat yield measurement that comes from DEXA, which let, lets you know that it's cleaner. And then we've also got animal health recording. So producers who send us animals get feedback on an individual carcass basis if there are any animal health issues in the carcass or whether there are any carcass defects. So things, things like you know a dog bite or different things that might occur um, on farm that we're obviously trying to discourage through best practice. So those things all feed into something that we call the GLQ score. So we developed this algorithm then that grades a carcass. And so it uses those inputs, intramuscular fat, total lean meat yield, as well as animal health, to score the carcass. And if a producer has a higher uh, GLQ score, so over five, which is the product, our premium product that we call yep. GLQ5+, plus, then they get paid more for that product, which is where the fairer comes from because – what you're what you're actually delivering to a chef or a consumer is a product that is better because it's got higher levels of intramuscular fat. It's cleaner because it's it, the disease burden is being reduced over time, and the and the level of uh, sustainable production that's going in to create that kilo of fat, a kilo of meat, pardon me, is there. And then it's fairer because the farmers being paid more when they do a good job, and that's really resonating uh, with the chefs that have that have picked the product up, and with the consumers that are eating the product. That there's this balance that's going on. Uh, with the product, which is exciting for us to watch. And I think that I guess that's sort of a guiding principle in, in the whole thing is that there's this, there's this gap that we saw and, and, and there was a gap on the consumer side as well as a gap on the producer side. So we sort of talked about it earlier about this commodity product that's, that's being sold as a premium, but, and, and the mismatch comes in that you've got great chefs who are doing amazing things in their kitchens and, and really creating some special outcomes with lamb, but they've got huge variability in in their raw material because it doesn't behave the same way. And it's a lot of that's down to not being able to see intramuscular fat because there's quite a lot of variation in intramuscular fat. So the chef or the or the or the home cook uh, is is sometimes winning in that equation, but randomly but sometimes really being let down by a, by a product that's been sold to them as premium. And then on the other end of the scale, you've got a producer who's who's working incredibly hard to produce a product and and they don't get rewarded when it's better and they don't it's just being sold on a dollar per kilo basis. And so which is disheartening because they're putting that effort into all the right things but they're not seeing the reward at the end of it. Completely. And and we see in lamb time and time again that people that then motivates people to start their own gig, to start their own brand, to do their own thing, which for the people that are successful in doing it um, will all tell you is an incredible difficult, difficult, you know. know. And I used to get phone calls every week, you know, can I process 10 lambs a week? And I was like, you need to process thousands of lambs a week for this to to work in the constructive industry as it is today. And so really what we were trying to do with Gundy Guy Lamb is say, for anyone that has that itch, come to us and we'll try to scratch it in the sense that we'll give you the feedback, we'll pay you more when it's great, and so you'll be able to feel like you're actually doing something um, unique on farm or intelligent forward on farm, and when you crack the code and you get the outcome, we'll measure that outcome and we'll pay you more for it. And so that's been exciting for us to 
to witness producers who, who are able to do that. And we're still learning so much about the how to produce yeah. that. But I think that having started that journey, we're now starting to see some of the ways that you can do it better, but also understanding what our role is with then producers in sort of helping them understand it a bit better and and I guess providing a, a framework and network for them to be able to come together themselves to say how do we how do we grow lambs that are more likely to be GLQ five and up the five plus product, yeah. And I think what's exciting about that is it's this feedback loop, which is so essential to things improving and progress being made in the right direction. And you're, as we, you know, touched on before, it's a collaborative approach as well. And so I think, you know, this idea of all working together for the greater good is just where we need to head to be able to achieve greater outcomes that are good for farmers are taking away this tension that you talked about at the beginning between the either the farmer and the producer and one's yes. winning, one's losing. But then for the end consumer as well, being being able to have a better understanding of how their buying power and understanding of that also But also not being let down by the product. Yeah. Because in in Australia, because it's, it's really synonymous with who we are, Lamb, we all know how to cook it. Yeah. And so if we have a bad experience, then there's an assumption that the bad experience was driven by a poor preparation of the product or, yeah. you know, it was... but. On the other hand, if you're in the US, where we, where I think 1% of Americans or something in the order of 1% to 2% of Americans eat lamb, if they eat it and they end up with a bad cut, then that might be their one lamb experience. And they say, I ate that. I ate lamb once. It wasn't very good. And so I think we have this responsibility as an industry to say, well, we need to understand the level of quality and understand that it's not all going to be great, but we can move more of it to be great. And it and it becomes something that really supports the in- industry because you can't you can't keep selling lamb at higher price points to get better returns to farmers at the farm gate if some of the time it's really not up to scratch. And so we need to be able to draft that, if you like, to yeah. use a, a kind of a farming term. We need to be able to draft the good ones and 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 get better money for them, and we need to be be able to cull the sort of bad ones and and put them into what one of my nephews describes as boarding school food. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And I love the way that you talk about the the grading. I actually had to look up GLQ. I was like, what does that mean? And what does it mean? (laughs) Well, it's the algorithm that we've we've built. And so not surprisingly, it's something that's proprietary to us. We've we've built it and it basically – it, it pulls in intramuscular fat level, lean meat yield level, animal health, and then gives the farmer a single score, which typically runs from sort of 1 to 10, if you like. There's no reason why you couldn't create a 12. But to the earlier point, we're not really trying to create, you know, the wagyu of lamb or something that's outrageously high in marbling or really rich or anything like that. We're really just trying to make sure that our product is of consistently high quality mm-hmm. and the product that's not in that category is identified and and sold in a separate line where we're not building an expectation that it's going to be you know insanely amazing. Which but it's still consistent. Absolutely, and so there's a market. There's a market for both, right? Yeah. Absolutely. But selling them all, sort of just averaging everything together, and then selling them creates challenges in the industry because if the consumer can't have confidence that it's going to be predictable or it's going to be consistent, behave the same way, then they tend to turn to things that are chicken, pork. Yeah, you know other products that they can get that reliability out of, and I love that it stands for Gundagai Lamb Quality Score. Yes, <laughs> that's fantastic. So you've got a collective of farmers that you're working with, and I can imagine you've got more and more farmers coming to you to find out how they can be part of this journey. What does that look like from sort of moving forward, uh, the scale to which you can grow this? Well, I think at the moment our industry is interesting because producers don't typically pick one place to send their lambs in a season. So they will, they might sell into four or five different processing facilities over the course of a season depending on whether it's been wet or dry, whether the lambs grow quickly or slowly and all those sorts of things. And so there's there's lots of, I guess, influences on who your crew is in terms of the supply base. And, and, and that's, that's smart as well because you're not is, putting all your eggs in one basket. But it's also in large part based on this history of being a volatile commodity kind of cyclical thing that they're always trying to play this game to keep out of you know trouble. So at the moment, we're identifying those producers either that have a higher proportion of GLQ5 plus lambs and trying to attract and retain them and others that are interested that maybe don't have the best GLQ score profile but are really focused on 
on improving it. And we've pulled together a group called the Pioneers Program, which is 13 producers or, or, or farming businesses who have come together and really that's about knowledge sharing, networking, and and not necessarily telling them how to grow more GLQ5 plus lambs because we're not – that's not our role and, and – and we're not the experts really in that, but there are so many experts out there that are already helping farming businesses to drive different um, outcomes in terms of the genetics they're selecting, so which ram or which breed, what nutrition, how to manage animal health on farm, simple farm management interventions that can prevent certain things from happening in different seasons, and the challenges are different in every season, so it's quite it's quite a complex sort of thing to manage. And so this Pioneers program is really about bringing together an initial group to share learnings, to sort of teach each other. We're not really the teachers. We're just sort of providing the, the platform, if you like, and, and introducing speakers to that group that can kind of help on that journey. But also we'll try to expose them to uh, the people that are eating the product on the on the, on the the end of the system because that's another thing that's kind of missing for producers, that we're, we're giving them feedback, but we're not actually necessarily introducing them to where the product's ending up. Yeah, and that's um, so important because they put so much, you know, time, energy, passion into what they do and to not know where it ends up or what that experience is like, and that's what we absolutely love bringing to life at Straight to the Source is connecting all those dots. Yeah, and I think that that's probably the the next little bit of something that I've been talking to you about is this concept of a brand home. So yeah. we've um And you haven't talked about this we haven't anywhere talked else about yet. This, so so. This, is, this is all yours. This is exclusive. <laughs> An exclusive. Um, essentially what we've done, so on a personal point of view, my wife and I have twin boys who are seven, one of who's, who's in the room right now listening to us. Sitting very um, quiet. Very quietly, being very well behaved. And, and a young daughter who's four, and so we've we made the move from Sydney, as I said, before children, and and located ourselves in Gundagai, and and we've sort of found our feet there. We've lived in town the whole time, and we've just bought fourteen hectares on on the edge of town. And our intent with that is to convert that into a, a place where we can bring people like you from straight to the source with some chefs to show you examples of how the production system works. Now, it's obviously not not scaled to the extent that all yep. of our producers are. But it will be a place where we demonstrate to end users what our production system's like because we've been bringing people to our meat processing facility like like yourself and yep. Tonya and what we find is that they go, wow, this is really interesting. But then they, we don't really have a, a place that we can go to to show them what the production system looks yep. like, what those challenges look like, what the successes of those things look like. Yep. and you end up just picking on two really good farmers that live within <laughs> 10 minutes of the plant and you can't keep doing yeah. that to those because they're running a business themselves. So we'll create that space and we'll also have a focus on on producer um, networking events and bringing people together. So we'll do a lot of workshops on different things that are topical in the season. So if it's a particularly wet season, we might have certain animal health issues and other things and then hopefully in, in time bring both our producers and the end users, so the chefs and, and consumers to the, to the site to share those things together. And it's really a pleasing thing for me personally because we'll be living there and being able to demonstrate those things, uh, to my children is really exciting for me. But also I think my wife Carla has been extraordinarily supportive. I think that People you talk to will probably all say the same thing. If there's someone uh, in a family sense that's in your life that you're sharing it with who you can't really do it without, and that's certainly true of, of our relationship. And so but having the ability to actually bring those things a little bit closer to home and demonstrate them sort of with her and with our children is is massively exciting yeah, for me as a concept. Because you spend a lot of time, like in a family business, you don't really get away from the business, so it's it's always there, it's ever-present. can be a bit suffocating. Well, it can imagine. be suffocating, but also what ends up happening is that I go to work and experience all of the highs and all of the lows, but when you come home with the lows, they're typically played on a bigger megaphone than the, than the highs. So being able to sort of, I guess, experience um, those things that we're trying to achieve and, and actually – I guess share with my family what we're doing to change the industry because I I really do feel that it will change the industry in time. It's just really exciting to be able to to be able to do that and actually create that place that then hopefully that that passion and that interest and that excitement will bleed into the chefs that visit us and yeah. and and the producers that that come and try to see what it's all about. Well, we're incredibly excited to be 
working with you and, and seeing this come to life and, and being a part of helping you bring that to life by, you know, being able to bring chefs to, to experience it. I think, you know, that tactile experience cannot be replaced. Like you have to be able to go and understand it by seeing it, feeling it. And to be able to bring that to life in a sort of small scale demonstration space makes so much sense, but it's never been done before. So what an incredible opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. We, we have a very modern, very, well, small scale by some industry measures, um, meat processing facility, which everyone who comes to says, wow, this is so much better than I thought it would be, or I'm pleasantly surprised. But then we don't have this other place then to go and, you know, show them Join production. all the dots. Yeah, join all the dots. And I think the the response we've had from industry partners that we've gone to and said, hey, we're thinking about doing this, this sort of example – I mean, the biggest risk is that is that the producers that vi- that visit us say, "Well, that's all well and good, but you've only got sixty ewes and you're on fourteen hectares. So, does that really scale for us?" So that'll be our challenge to make sure that whatever it is that we're demonstrating is scalable. There's can, a model we, behind absolutely, that too. Yeah. And we can demonstrate and we we'll say, yeah. "Well, yes, that is what we're showing you here." But there's three farms in our network that are doing it at scale, and then they can sort of follow up on that if they need to outside of what we're doing. But there are just so many things that, you know, like the rise of technology and the rate of change in all of those things that that producers just need to see. They need to be able to touch it. They need to be able to say, oh, so when you get that feedback from the abattoir, if you use it to put it into your on-farm software like that and then you have electronic ear tags in your lambs and you use the auto-drafter to get that outcome, then that actually might make you more profitable. And you say, yeah. yes, that's exactly what we're saying. But yeah. And to be able to see it in operation as well is that, um, Absolutely helps that leap of faith that they might have to take to make that investment because they're not small investments. They're they're pretty significant they're I mean, investments. They are, but the the benefits that can drive through your business are, are massive. And and I don't think that we're going to get the rate of change that we want to without actually putting on a demonstration to do it. So yeah. So gosh, you've achieved a lot in nearly three years. Yes. That's a really short amount of time if you think about actually what you've achieved. So the brand is out, Gundagai Lamb is out in the, in the market in Australia. Yes. And also in your exporting to the US. We or? are. So we, the US would be our biggest, our biggest market, but we do go um, into parts of uh, Southeast Asia into, into North Asia. So Japan and South Korea, um, at, at sort of, it's more in its infancy. The Middle East is a big market for us as well. And obviously now we're looking towards um, the UK with the free trade agreement and the, and the EU as markets that, that might have a place for the product. And I think other countries and other, like we've had visits from New Zealand and UK meat processors who are trying to see sort of, you know, how, that must how feel we're good doing what, that they're um, coming to massive ego, yeah. ego bump. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's nice, but I think the, the one thing that we've realized is that you actually have to have intent and do it. So it's very easy to look at our model from the outside and go, why isn't everyone doing this? This is really easy. But it's not easy. You have to pull a lot of strands together and you have to be really committed to the idea that that's more important than processing 10% more or just using scale or or being better at um, buying better because of the averages. You've, you've got to believe that this is actually a better, more sustainable way to run a supply chain and in the long term it will shelter us because in many respects there are times, there have been times in the last three years where it would have just been better to not have relationships with farmers, just to go to the sale yards, buy them, and the trade would have been more profitable for us to do it that way. So there's a there's a fair bit of kind of discipline and belief that's required And that's where the vision so important. Like you really got that as your anchor to yes. kind of hold fast to when there's bumps in the road and when the market's fluctuating and it, there would be an easier way to do it. Yeah, and look, we've toyed with the idea of changing the model, the pricing model, so that we're sort of pricing a year in advance, say, to say to our farmers, right, this is the price for the next 12 months. But the reality is that we've never been able to do that yet because we just haven't been around as a brand for long enough for farmers to trust that that that's a good idea. So we've still got a lot of building blocks to sort of put building together. Trust. Be- yeah, before we yeah. get to a point where producers say, no, they've behaved consistently for the last five years. We understand what they're about. We've seen enough of them to understand that that's something that we want to do. And also they might they need to understand better how many of their lambs are GLQ5+. plus. So there's a risk for them at the moment too that when they send lambs into us, there's not they might not be that good and not good on a measure that we've never seen before. So they're – 
it's not like they've got 20 years of data to compare it to. If you've never processed lambs at Gundagai, you have no idea what your lean meat yield or intramuscular fat is. You don't know what is. your starting point nope, is. None at all. And that's a big risk for a farmer. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So from a chef perspective, chefs are really beginning to hear about Gundagai lamb now and yep. seek it out. And you've got some incredible advocates in the market, as you've talked about, Jason down at the Stoke House and Darren O'Rourke. What would you say to chefs like in terms of, of engaging with you and coming to find out more? I mean, we're incredibly excited about this this space that you'll have that we can bring them to to sort yes. of answer a lot of those questions. But what are the questions you're getting from them at the moment that you're, that, that you're dealing with? I think... Uh, I think for starters, the, the, the place to, I guess, look and understand and learn is certainly social media. So, so on Instagram, we're very, we're very strong on, on passing on this knowledge and, and why we're different. And so, and the points I think, of difference. I yeah. Think that I comes think across really strongly. Quick scroll will, will lead to a lot of, a lot of knowledge. I think the, the other challenge that we've got is obviously the GLQ5 plus product is more expensive than regular lamb. And so it's this leap about, the behavioural uh, change to say, I know that that will perform better, and I know that 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 product is worth more. And so, for anyone that's in engaged enough and keen enough to learn, and keen enough to sort of prove it to themselves through their through their um their diners, then it's absolutely worth the leap for anyone that's sort of only marginally interested and says oh you know i don't think this is important to my to my diners or then it's just not for them and so i think that's that's a big part of what we're doing is finding the people that actually get it and go actually that i've got a i've got a use for that product because there's lots of places that don't have a use yeah for that product to be to be candid and to, and that's the reality that some places will say well those elements, better, cleaner, and fairer, don't aren't really important They're to the people that I serve. No, yeah. and 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 in that case, we say fine because we're tiny and there's lots of lamb in Australia, and you know yeah. there's plenty of places to get it. But if that's something that that you hear and you think, wow, that's that really resonates with with our people, then just get in touch, get in touch via um, socials or, or or on our website because we love engaging. Obviously, we would come and see and look and all yep. those sorts of things, uh, and hopefully get them to site to, to have a look, which is a little bit more challenging getting people out to Gundagai, but we'll help we welcome there. them with open arms. <laughs> we'll help you there. I love that. You're building your tribe and it's and it's growing. You can yeah. see that it's growing. And like you said, that intent behind it and just sticking really a, a really clear focus on that vision and not swaying and just that's your your guiding principle is really impressive and something we're really proud to work with you on Thanks. and and help spread the word to chefs and industry and consumers. So chefs can get in touch through the website. They, you can reach out to us if anyone's listening and, and wants to um, get in touch with with uh, Will and the team at Gundagai Meat Processors and Gundagai Lamb. Consumers can also buy it in butchers. They can. Um, it's I, I, I'd be crazy to try to list butchers that they can get it in on, on this, but certainly Vix Meats through Darren have it on online. So if you're in Sydney, you can order it online yep, um, right. through Vix, Vix Meats online store. Uh, and we're, we're in a range of different different butcher shops around the place. Again, if you're looking for it and you're really keen, just hit us up on socials and we'll be able to, if we know where you are, we'll just yep. point you in the right yeah, direction. Point you in the right yeah. direction. Well, we're incredibly excited about seeing this space come to life and bringing lots of chefs <laughs> out to come and experience it and, and understand more about what you're doing. What's next, do you think? Like, where do you think you'll be in five years from now? It's funny. I'm, I'm terribly impatient. And so there's always something that's next. I, I, I'm really fascinated at the moment by the concept of food as medicine. Yeah. And so I think a lot of, I mean, that's, yeah, something that's really driving a lot of people's and, uh, learning so I think and education. Probably two big themes. One is our industry has spent so much time either hiding out of a fear that somebody won't agree with, um, consumption of animals, just generally. And and then I I think I think we've spent a lot of time trying to say it's not bad for you. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could identify as in red meats? Not yeah, bad for you. Yeah. So we say, oh look, it's not bad for you, or you know, don't listen to this report or that report. And so the, you know, everyone commissions their own report to try to figure out how to combat. You know, sugar's good for you, sugar's bad for you, fat's good for you, fat's bad for you. Yep. And and the reality is that it's you know everything in moderation and all of those old kind of adages, but. I think being able to identify um, 
in the same way that we've identified objectively measure, objectively measuring these other outcomes that have led to a sort of a the the beginnings of a of what we hope is a successful brand being able to identify those attributes in certain animals that have elevated levels of different things that could actually be proactively quite good for you depending on you know what your what your diet is so long chain fatty acids um all sorts of different things that we might be able to actually measure as part of the process and say this particular cut of lamb is GLQ5 plus, but it's also been graded as having a high omega-3 content or And it's backed up by data, like you said. It's Absolutely. not just a claim, it is no. actually it, it's there yeah. in the And I think that's where things like lamb fall apart a bit because they say it's all good for you. Well that's some of them are going to be better. And so if you can measure it, great. Then the other thing I think is certainly the, the sustainability piece. So starting to work with our producers on how their soil health can actually have a big impact in terms of carbon sequestration, but then the link between soil health, plant health, animal health, and human health that, that, that are eating that animal, I, I think that's such an exciting space that we'll be, we'll be seeking, proactively seeking out partners on the, on this block of land that we've got to try to prove out concepts in that space as well. Wow. Well, a lot to look forward to, a lot that you've achieved. So congratulations. I think it's incredibly exciting the way you're bringing, like we said, this tribe together to achieve fantastic progress in a way that builds community and builds a momentum, I think, for the industry that we haven't seen before. And we're really excited about the direction it's heading in. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. And if anyone wants to reach out, we will, uh, to Will and the team, we will have some links in the show notes. You can always DM myself or Tonya on Straight to the Source. But thank you for joining us and we'll let you head off with your boys and enjoy the rest of your school holidays. Thanks, Lucy. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some extraordinary guests lined up, and we'd love for you to join us again. Please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd love feedback, good or bad, or perhaps a guest you'd love to hear from. Please just let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of our Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.